This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome to 2020, and welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and actually I've been on a little bit of a hiatus the last couple of weeks, so I'm delighted to be back with you. Before we get started, I want to thank everyone who's been reading Perfectly Hidden Depression, my new book, and who's left reviews on Amazon. They show up as a verified purchase and are extremely important reviews and actually give the book a lot of validity. So if you're reading and you've learned something from it, I'd love for you to leave a review on Amazon, just two sentences. That would be extremely gratifying. And of course, those reviews on iTunes for self-work are obviously appreciated. I want to share with you that today we reached 1 million downloads, and that's just downloads. So you're in great company, and I'm very honored that you're here. To get 2020 started, we're going to be talking about a lack of sexual intimacy or the sexless marriage that so many couples are dealing with. There are scads of reasons why this happens, and the research I looked at estimated that 15 to 20 percent of committed relationships or marriages had become rarely, if ever, sexual. Now, I won't cover them all, but we'll touch on 10 of the most common ones I've seen in my 27 years of practice as a therapist. Some are probably familiar, some might be painful because they describe your own situation, but some actually may surprise you. Please realize that this episode may act as a trigger if you were or are being abused. I've included the sexual abuse hotline number for the U.S. in the show notes, but wherever you are, if this is so, seek help if you need it. The listener email today is from a man who's in love with someone with chronic abuse in her past and is asking me for advice on how he can help. Thank you so much for being here. So let's sit back and let's talk about the sexless relationship or marriage. I have to remember sometimes that as a therapist, I only see folks that are having problems and problems actually that they're willing to try and work on. Maybe they're sitting in front of me wanting me to only fix the other one. That can happen for sure. But couples therapy can do a lot of good if I have two people in the room who are willing to take their fair share of the responsibility for whatever problems there are. Yet the room can become very quiet when I begin to ask about intimacy and sex. So many people don't know how to talk about it, don't feel comfortable talking about it, and sadly, there are even therapists who never bring a couple's sexual or sensual life into their sessions. That's like trying to describe a club sandwich and leaving out the piece of bread in the middle to me. Sexual problems may not be brought up, but they are an integral part of every relationship, and your sexual life is an important part of who you are. As I said in the intro, however, around 15 to 20 percent of couples in most research studies state that they rarely, if ever, have sex. So what's going on? Now, obviously, if abuse is part of the picture, sex can be something very scary when it's used in an aggressive way in order to humiliate or control someone. But that's not the topic for today. But I should state, just for the record, that marital rape does occur. There's no consent about that kind of sex at all. 
it's forcibly taken. Instead, we'll be briefly discussing 10 scenarios where the sexual life of a couple can become way out of whack and a huge issue. And remember, for those of you who may have listened to self-work before, I always talk about what you can do about it. So we'll address that as well. Let's start with the first. Obviously, sex can be withdrawn when it's a tool for anger. Julie and John Gottman, who are major researchers in the marital field, would term this a part of stonewalling, which is basically withdrawal meant to control. Stonewalling is one of the, what they term, four horsemen of the apocalypse, heralding not the end of the world, but the death of the relationship. That technique may be more covert than showing your anger or your disappointment, but selling up, moving into another bedroom with no explanation, for example, or consistently sleeping with one of the children, that's how you begin to sabotage any true remedies for what's going on in the marriage. Of course, the thing to do about this is actually to talk about your anger in a reasonable and appropriate way and realize that you're using either a passive-aggressive technique to get your point across or you yourself are very uncomfortable with anger and or the two of you don't know how to talk about anger in a fair way. This obviously can lead to tremendous problems as a person may feel abandoned but not quite know what's going on. And it can become very easy to maintain that behavior. The second way that sex can die is through unresolved sexual abuse issues. I worked with a couple several years ago where one partner, who happened to be male, had been horribly bullied and abused by a brother, and his husband didn't want to hear about it. So his story remained untold in their relationship. He'd never received therapy for it either, and he stayed in a place of shame. After their initial attraction had worn off, his struggles became more evident as he rarely, if ever, initiated sex, fearing performance issues because he was fighting flashbacks. This kind of dynamic is very hard to undo once it's begun, as more time passes and more opportunities for understanding are missed. If your partner or you have a history of sexual abuse, it's so important to share that with your partner. The Courage to Heal, for example, which is a wonderful book for the treatment of sexual abuse, has an accompanying book that is for partners of people who still need to heal. You can walk the walk together so that nothing is misunderstood or misinterpreted. The third is on every list that I looked up of what leads to a sexless marriage, and it's stress. I hear couples all the time complain about work stress, the stress of rearing kids. They've lost any concept of their sex life as being about play. It's become some of their tasks to check off. And one that is usually the last on the list. They all say to me, we're just too tired. (laughs) Now, I get being tired when you're rearing children. I remember my husband and I actually banned the word tired from our vocabulary because we were using it so much. And we just had one. Certainly, if you add any kind of infertility or wanting to have a child or another child, sex can become something that's not about connecting at all, but about procreation only. And that can do a lot of damage. It seems ironic, doesn't it, that at a time when you're trying to bring a new life into the world, that you're actually doing damage the way you're going about it. When stress is the factor, I often suggest that the couple not have for a while an expectation of sex and start out getting closer but with sex off the table. 
you know, sometimes it's actually been years since their skin has touched. So you have to start where you are. It's likely to be awkward, but very slowly and with talking and sharing, you can take some steps to be together again. The fourth reason is, again, perhaps pretty obvious, and it's because people don't want to talk about changes or they don't have the language to talk about changes that have occurred to them due to medical problems or body image or aging issues. So many people struggle to talk about their sexual selves anyway. You add the fact that you had a baby so you have stretch lines now or you have erectile dysfunction at age 48 or 58 or 68 or you've gained weight or whatever. You're in menopause and sex is the last thing on your mind. So the conversation can grind to a bitter halt if it ever got started. I remember working out with a friend and she said after a divorce, before she'd even think about seriously dating someone, she'd say, I have to get down to my naked weight. She was laughing, but it's really no laughing matter. It's a very difficult thing to say to someone, I just don't feel the attraction to you that I used to, but maybe there are things you can do about it. Maybe there's certain habits that the other person has, or they're depressed and they're not taking good care of themselves. Whatever it is, you can gently bring it up to them and talk about it together. You can, of course, also help your partner accept something that they're really struggling with. Whether it's shame or embarrassment or confusion or worry, all of those feelings can make someone shy away from talking about themselves and the changes that perhaps they are finding hard to accept. And instead, everybody yearns for their 21-year-old body and image. But if compassion is there, if love is there, and understanding is there, then the two of you can talk about this together. Sex, for example, can be very painful for someone with a pelvic dysfunction. But you can look into different positions and different ways of having sex or enjoying sex together. That can help. You just have to be open. The fifth reason that sex can be a goner is differences in libido. Dr. Pat Love in her book Hot Monogamy points out that when two people meet, we're actually as human beings biologically programmed to procreate. So if one person's libido is low, it actually rises to meet their new partners. And if their partner's libido is higher, it can actually lower a bit all of this unconsciously. Now, maybe they're lucky and both have high libidos. That can happen. I've heard people talk about their bodies fitting together like a glove, and sex comes very easily to them. This is probably a case where their libidos actually match very well, and they can sustain a good or really great sexual relationship, no matter the quality of the rest of it. There are people who fight constantly, but they'll tell me they have a great sex life. But most of us limp along and wonder why things have changed so much since when we first met. But what happens, according to Dr. Love, is that things get back to normal, and normal is different levels of libidos for both. So again, we get back to talking about it. Maybe you counted on a higher libido to actually want to have intercourse or want to be close with someone. And maybe you need to educate each other about what really feels good to you. So you may have to consider hormone therapy. But instead of a frank discussion Often these differential libido levels turn into fights about how much sex the couple should be having, or someone turns it into a counter. Oh, that can really be demeaning. And if you bring up what you believe other couples are doing, there could be lots of anger and blaming. 
But this can be turned around and it can be worked with. I know because I've seen it. A sixth very practical reason is that there are side effects of medications for depression and anxiety. And of course, mental illness itself can cause all kinds of fluctuations in sexual behavior. When someone becomes manic or has abuse in their history, they can struggle with self-destructive sexual behavior and choices. When someone is depressed or anxious, being sexual does not come easy for them. In fact, they may isolate. But a frequent side effect of some medications for mental health is a decreased libido, fatigue, weight gain, difficulty with orgasm, all things that negatively affect a sensual relationship with a partner. So as a couple, you have to talk about the pros and cons of being on a medicine or not and find a way to have intimacy differently for a while. Intercourse is not the only way. Then you have to be patient and allow the partner to become more stable and not take their struggle personally. This, again, is ironic, as both the illness itself and the meds that help can cause a problem. Maintaining emotional intimacy can be a lifeline here, as really with all these issues. The seventh I find very interesting. It comes from religious or cultural shame. I remember the first couple who suffered this as they told me about their problems with intimacy. When they first dated and decided to become sexual, everything was great. The sex was very satisfying. But one or both of them decided when they were going to marry to stop having sex, that it no longer felt right. One or both of them struggled to forgive themselves for having sex in the first place, and they carried that shame into the marriage. Sex was no longer fun or connected, but brought with it a regret or remorse or even shame. Often these folks have a more conservative upbringing, but not necessarily. I've also seen this issue, however, when children were taught, again, in a more typically conservative faith or belief system, that sex should only be for procreation and not enjoyment. Being aroused was sinful. When this is the case, I will refer them also to spiritual counselors that can help them with these issues. That's not my purview. But I will talk to them about the psychological part. Here are the last three. The eighth one is parenthood. I've talked with many a couple who just had a baby or babies, and the mother especially is struggling to feel sexual at all. The father sometimes is struggling with jealousy because of the attention the mom gives the baby. Sometimes you can see a partner give love to a child that you feel like you're not getting yourself, and this can cause emotional intimacy problems. But back to the mom, it's not just because of hormones or postpartum depression, but all of a sudden, her body has been transformed into a place to feed from, or run to, or cry to, or bounce on, or cling to. And it's not that that's bad, but it's hard sometimes for a woman to return to her sensuality after she's been pregnant and had a child to reclaim her body as her own. And that can be hard for her partner to understand, whether her partner is a male or a female. Again, it takes communication. I've also had dads who tell me that seeing their female partners go through childbirth is something they can't get out of their minds, almost like a post-traumatic stress. That can be worked on slowly as each partner tries to understand and not take personally the struggle their partner's having. The next to last reason is pornography. I was actually surprised by some of the research on pornography. What we're really talking about here is not watching pornography together. It's when pornography becomes an addiction. There was a huge study, which is cited in the show notes, 
that looked at a sample of 1,500 young adults. The study was trying to develop a more refined understanding of how the dose of pornography use is correlated with sexual satisfaction. And overall, they found that more frequent porn viewing was associated with lower sexual satisfaction in both women and men. For example, I had a case where a couple was trying to become pregnant. What later was learned was that the man was using porn increasingly and was less able to achieve orgasm because of it. And, of course, it was a secret, and secrets have power. What I generally find is that porn or other secrets are usually about grabbing control, whether it's a man or a woman, because guess what? You're definitely in control when you're watching porn. Interestingly, another study I found showed an age factor. When porn viewing began earlier, as in your 20s, and it began after marriage, sexual satisfaction went down rapidly. But the older you got when the porn viewing began after your marriage, for example, if you started in your 50s, there was no correlation between a decrease in sexual satisfaction and pornography use. Maybe that's because the marriage has lasted a long time and there's more trust. There's also a problem with pornography because it shows us a story of what's supposed to happen for sex to be successful. Looking at pornography and the women and men who acted out certainly show that she reaches orgasm only 18% of the time, whereas he does 72% of the time. So it would model for us that a female's sexual arousal and enjoyment is not as important as that of a man. Now, maybe that worked in marriages a long time ago, but certainly I don't think it works for many couples today. So it's something perhaps to be avoided because of that, or at least not used addictively and in secret. The last reason that sex can become a problem is affairs. Affairs can definitely affect sex. If you're having an affair, you can feel guilty and withdraw, or you're distracted because you're comparing the sex that you have with one person with the other, or you don't feel regret at all, but you're hiding feelings that you have for someone else. And as we said about pornography, when it's a secret, that has power. It is interesting to me that after an affair is discovered, it's not uncommon at all for the couple to have great sex again. Now, they'll look almost sheepish when they talk about it, but it's normal. It's as if the fear of losing someone or the realization of just how far from one another they've disconnected, it introduces an urgency or a desperation that temporarily renews their passion, but temporarily is the important word here. I've seen the same thing happen during or even after a divorce. It's the reality of losing the relationship that sparks a desire not felt in a long time, maybe even a clinging to what was or what could be, again, usually temporarily. This happens more than people realize, and I see it as part of the letting go process. But eventually, you both have to work on the feelings that are underneath the affair. You need to reestablish trust or make a decision to divorce. And that's very hard work. I do have a podcast on it, though, and it's called Regaining Trust. So you might go to my website, drmargaretrutherford.com, and type in the search for Regaining Trust, and there it will be. My message for this is one that is very similar to other messages that I've used, that there are things you can do about it. You don't have to simply say, well, I guess that's out of my life, or it's not important. You know, one of the things that someone who's divorced or a widow or a widower will tell me is that they miss being touched. Touch is so important. 
The stress relief you get from an orgasm can be really helpful, as well as the vulnerability that is shared, at least in healthy sex. So I hope that you'll think about these things and consider gaining more intimacy, more trust, more connection, more play, more sexual satisfaction in your own partnership. Our listener email, which is a regular feature of self-work, is from a man who has a very good friend who has complex PTSD, meaning she had multiple traumatic experiences in her life that were also lasted a long time. Here's his question. I want you to know I love your podcast, have listened to many episodes, and they've helped me gain clarity in a bunch of new ways. So thank you. My question relates to complex PTSD, as discussed in one of your recent episodes. My best friend was severely abused sexually, mentally, and physically as a child until she left home when she was 16. She suffers from major trauma, insomnia, frequent and severe mood swings, and she knows this trauma is preventing her from living the life she wants to lead. She's done a lot of healing and work on herself, and I think she's done an amazing job. To me, she's truly inspirational. She does, however, continue to suffer from her abusive childhood and the fallout from the breakdown of past relationships. Can you suggest some ways that, as a friend, I can help and support her? This is such a tough question, and I get it frequently. When someone you care about is really struggling, what can you truly do? So here's my answer to him. I may not be understanding, but it sounds as if your friend has done her own very admirable work. But you don't say she's been in therapy to do that. Now, this is not just because I'm a therapist, but there is something about sharing your trauma with a trauma expert and being guided very carefully through it that can begin to do things you simply cannot do for yourself. It is in telling your secret, telling the things that you thought you could tell no one, is where there can be healing. And of course, there are specific trauma techniques like EMDR, eye movement desensitization, and reprocessing therapy that's excellent for trauma. In fact, I recommend searching Dr. Laura Parnell's website, that's P-A-R-N-E-L-L, to see if there are people that she's trained in your area. I think she's an excellent EMDR therapist. I certainly wouldn't recommend working with anyone who doesn't have some kind of certification for EMDR or specialized training. Now, what can you do? You can support her realization that it took years for the damage to be done, and it will take time to heal, but help her hope. Let her know you're there for her. It sounds as if you may be acting as a safe male figure for her, but realize your caring cannot repair the damage that's been done. I want to thank you for joining me here at Self Work today. You can reach out to me at drmargaretrutherford.com. That's my website. Or email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I'm very grateful and honored that you're here. And you can join my Facebook closed group to have a little more connection with me if you'd like. It's facebook.com slash groups slash selfwork. That's facebook.com slash groups slash selfwork. And thank you again for the reviews for the book Perfectly Hidden Depression, which is on sale now at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and your local bookstore. Maybe you have to ask for it, but they'll get it for you. 
And I'd so appreciate those of you, gosh, there are 12,000 of you that have listened to the downloads on Perfectly Hidden Depression. I hope the book can be helpful. Take very good care. Thanks for being here. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.